This is the Aider and a Better podcast with Avi Singh and Sajid Khan. On today's podcast, we have opening statements where we discuss kind of brutal ICE update in terms of deportation and the treatment of a DACA recipient and how Dreamers have been reacting to the changes. In our deep dive segment, we talk about a, a mosque uh, and an act of vandalism in the city of Davis, how the court systems responded to it. And at the end of the show, we do our things. Let's do it. We've talked previously about ICE and the dangers that we had seen with the Trump executive orders on ICE and the potential dangers for the courtroom and why it's important to have our criminal process separate from our immigration process and kind of the warnings or red alerts materialized in the last couple weeks. We talked about it in episode two. We broke down the executive orders from the Trump administration relative to deportation and we foresaw in those discussions that the potential impact that those orders would have in our communities. And now we're seeing that impact in a really real scary way. Uh, There's a couple things that have come up. In one story, a a person went to court. Uh, She was a victim of domestic violence. There's police activity, uh, possible court dates. And this person went to court to seek protection. So this happens frequently uh, when we're dealing with domestic violence cases where folks show up to the courtroom and they request a restraining order. This is a, a, a moment where the court system is your protection. You know, it's the place where you come for protection and this woman who showed up wound up getting detained in court by immigration officials. Right. This is an El Paso County Courthouse on February 9th. And like you mentioned, we expect, we have an expectation of our courthouses, our court rooms, our judicial system to be sources of protection for community members, uh, sources of justice, and in particular with issues related to domestic violence where so often domestic violence is, at, is relegated to the fringe or takes place in darkness, it is often commendable and encouraged for people to step out of that darkness and report their crimes uh, or report crimes against them, report abuse against them, and to seek protection from the court. And here we have an alleged victim came to court only to be arrested by ICE agents. Um, So the sanctity of that courthouse, the sanctity and the safe space of that courthouse arguably has been forever disturbed for that person and for any other potential uh, alleged victim of domestic violence or those that are seeking protection from the court. Yeah, this danger is no longer hypothetical, right? The message is very clear uh, that if you're afraid of being caught up in some sort of net by ICE, the memo is, or you know, the message is loud and clear, don't come to court even if you need to for your protection. And that's such a dangerous message. That's, that's, you know, that message, none of us should support that sort of message, that the court is closed based on your immigration status. It's heartbreaking and it has, it's one case that has far-reaching potential ramifications. Uh, You think, again, about the willingness of a victim of abuse or a victim of any sort of crime who may not have legal status, their willingness to call the police, their willingness to come to court. Uh, In addition to that, we also think from a defense perspective, the concern that we have of, uh, we have to subpoena witnesses on behalf of our clients. It's crucial to our to our system of justice and our system of due process for our clients and 
situations like this for this woman in El Paso will have an immediate impact to, de to deter those with questionable status from cooperating. So this is going to lead to real problems with the functioning of our system. This is going to lead to bad outcomes. Yeah, the, the, the flip side of this, though, and I think I'm taking on kind of a devil's advocate approach here, is the flip side of this or the counter response to this from, a, from the Trump administration would be these people are illegal. They don't have standing to be in this country, meaning they don't have papers or documentation. And why do they deserve to stay here any minute longer than they are legally entitled to, if, that, if, if I'm making sense? I mean, that's the sense that I got from the rhetoric that helped Donald Trump get elected, is that there are, there's a segment of, of the population that wants these, wants quote-unquote illegal immigrants or aliens to be removed and re be removed as expeditiously as possible because they're taking our jobs, they're, they're ruining our communities, things like that. So, I, it, you know, as we discuss these far-reaching implications of, of these ICE raids that are currently taking place, I sense that there is a, there's a group in our population that doesn't care. Yeah, well, even if you, I mean, even if you adopt an ends justifies the means you know, approach, I, I don't know that, that that holds. Like, even you know, even if you're going to say uh, that our court system, you know, shouldn't function uh, for folks depending on their immigration status, or you're going to say that, uh, you know, if you don't have immigration status uh, that gives you protections, you should, uh, you know, it, who cares if you're deterred uh, from calling the police? But it's so much more complicated, you know? I, I think that the woman in our case that we're just talking about with the restraining order, uh, some of the articles described how many times she'd illegally re-entered, how many crimes that she's committed, you know, while she's been in the country. I think the takeaway is, well, who cares? Uh, but it's not about her individual case. I think that's part of the story. But the other part of the story is, uh, when someone's in trouble, are they going to be able to seek out help? And I think that we, even while people are here, we want them to be treated with dignity. You know, even even if we think they shouldn't be here, ultimately, we still want to treat everybody with dignity. And that witness, you know, who doesn't happen to have status, that witness could be crucial uh, for somebody who does. Right. You know, that witness could be crucial to uh, be an alibi witness for someone charged with a serious crime or a percipient witness, somebody who actually saw a robbery occur and could be the only person to do the identification. Right. And that's for citizens and non-citizens, because we don't choose who we're around when crimes are committed. Yeah, and, and uh, what you're, to your point that you went, went to, you so, talked about kindness. And so when, it, when we talk about who cares, um, and to maybe counter that, that, vo that opinion that out there, that, that is at the root of these executive orders. That's at the root of these ICE raids. Because at their roots, th that's what this is. This is... These people don't belong here. We're going to get rid of them as quickly and as efficiently as possible. I mean, let's be real. That's, yeah. that's the underlying sentiment. And then our response to that as, as a country, as, as citizens, as community members, is compassion, is kindness, is empathy. And that's kind of, that's what we are trying to remind whoever's listening. Uh, we're trying to remind them of those values. And we want to remind those that we, we, I think we need a reminder to those that carry that sentiment of who cares, just of basic compassion. And in this case, there's a separate problem, which is 
some declarations by ICE uh, suggest that all of this happens outside of the court, you right. know, outside of the courthouse, and videotape contradicts that. So we also have another kind of, is there misconduct or, or fabrication to kind of say, you know, we're not, we're not doing what everybody thinks we shouldn't do. We're doing it all outside when that's not true, which is just a separate harm, uh, which we can talk about at another episode of when when police or when government officials don't tell the truth and why that's a problem. Um, well, that, that kind of dovetails into this, this other young man who is currently in custody, I believe, uh, Daniel Ramirez, who is a child of immigrants who came here himself as an immigrant. I think when he was seven. Who now is has received a, a special status as a Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival Recipient, DACA. And he was arrested in his home by immigration authorities when they came to uh, apprehend his father, who was also without status. There are proceedings now to get him out of custody. Yeah, so the, you know, this is similar in the following sense. We have, uh, in 2012, the government says, there are all these people, they're living in the shadows. It would be better for us as a society if those people did not live in the shadows. They were brought here as kids. They've been here for a long enough period of time. They don't present the risk to public safety. They pass a background check, all those things. And so we said, come out of the shadows. You know, come out of the shadows and we'll give you these two-year grants. And then renew and renew and you can work and, you know, it, we can have a better society. And so this uh, Mr. Ramirez appears to be the first person who came out of the shadows, gave his information to the government, you know, provided updated address information, updated educational information, submitted himself to background checks, got the status, got a renewal of the status, and is now in, in being held. Right. You know, this is a guy, he's a father of a three-year-old, his whole life has been here, and uh, so the government told us, come on out of the shadows and we'll provide you with some protection and all of us will benefit. And it's based on some accusation that he is gang affiliated or yeah. is a gang member. And that comes from some, some potential admissions of his uh, where he talked about um, where, he, where he grew up or who he hangs out with, uh, a tattoo that he might have had. Um, and in that, it, it, it has just like the other topic with the woman coming to the courthouse, this issue of, of gang membership has uh, far-reaching ramifications in the sense of there is an arbitrariness to it. Um, it is so subjective in terms of the government's being able to, government's ability to brand uh, someone like Daniel Ramirez a gang member based on where he lives, who his friends are, what kind of tattoos he has, where it's not really supported by any strong or substantial evidence, or let alone evidence of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It just seems to be this amorphous standard that could result in someone who is lawfully living here and who has come out of the shadows to take advantage of, of, of a country's protections only to have that country turn around and use some arbitrary standard to deport him. Well, yeah, you know, so he's held, right? There's a dispute about why he got held. You know, there's a dispute about well, the circumstances surrounding his initial detention. Then he's being, you know, he's in some facility, and somehow it comes up, Sereno or whatever, and some other group, 
and he's got a tattoo and somebody's interpreting the meaning of that tattoo. And there's some forms and the forms are erased in weird ways uh, that seem ambiguous. You just kind of wonder, like, there is no court finding. You know, there is no, uh, here is the requirements to be a disqualified gang member. Is it that you hang out with somebody? Is that you commit an offense in connection with that person? Is it that you promote what that person's doing? You know, there, there are no standards. And what we're going to have, and I hope we have this fight uh, through this case, and I hope that there's some resolution, the government's going to come in and say, you have actually no legal protections. All DACA says is, we're not going to throw you out of the country. That's all it says, but we can change our mind. And we can change our mind uh, if, you know, you affiliate with gang members, you're out. If you have a tattoo that we don't agree with or that we interpret one way, you're out. And we've decided that we're going to now throw you out. Originally, we weren't going to throw you out, but now we are. That's it. And the other side of the argument is, when you say, please come out, please give us all your information, we're not going to take adverse action against you for two years, and you can renew, and we'll give you a work permit. That confers upon you some protections. And if those protections are going to be uh, eliminated or erased, there have to be protections like procedural protections or due process protections. And, you know, that's different than, ah, uh, we changed our mind. Right. You know, the question is, what is, there's going to be a legal question, and the habeas petition and the response chart out the fight, which is the people on Mr. Ramirez's side are saying, we have some protections, and therefore you have to go through some steps if you want to take those protections away. And the government's saying, not really, we can just throw you out when we want. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so, it so uh, smacks in the face of what we hope of this country in terms of due process, in terms of uh, procedural protection, in terms of, and, and as we dovetail into our criminal justice system, the right to confront and cross-examine our accusers, the right to present a defense, um, the right to not be convicted of something or to lose one's uh, liberties um, unless there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt or some strong showing of, of evidence. And this, this uh, gray area is what is most scary. And, and then especially when it comes to gang membership, it's a, it's a battle that we fight in our courthouses because, because of how easy it is to brand someone a gang member in our, in our communities, um, oftentimes based, again, on where they're growing up. And oftentimes when you are someone like Daniel Ramirez, who's the child of an illegal immigrants who may, have, um, who may be being who may be raised in poverty or under under really uh, dire financial um, circumstances they're more likely to live in poor neighborhoods where maybe gangs are more likely to be prevalent uh, they may more maybe more likely to go to school with people that are gang associated or play baseball with them or go to high, go um, work with uh, alleged gang members and they may get a tattoo or wear certain colors because to fit in with those neighborhoods that they're operating within and rather than actually being gang members, oftentimes we see that our clients and people like Daniel Ramirez might just be products of, the, of their neighborhoods. And they're, they're not gang members in the sense that they've taken on some oath to defend or operate within the gang or that they um, have signed some contract, but they are just affiliated by their very being in, yep. these, in these communities. And how 
how troubling it would be to criminalize somebody or to deport somebody just based on where they live. Yeah, and Daniel Ramirez, he has no criminal record. You know, in order to get through this process, he had to he had to satisfy every public safety check. And in order to get renewed, he had to satisfy those same public safety checks. So I, I think that we're, uh, I, I think that the hope is that people who came out of the shadows are not punished by their action. You know, they aren't, they aren't detrimentally harmed uh, based on the fact that they did what the government asked them to do. And then there's also the aspect of, like, that we've talked about before of splitting families. Um, and this, for example, Daniel Ramirez is the father of this three-year-old child who presumably is born in the United States. He's a U.S. citizen. U.S. citizen and, um, and countless others that, who, who are in this kind of mixed family category where they, there are people of, of various uh, immigration standings in a, in a particular family. A father that's illegal, a son like Daniel Ramirez that's a, that's a DACA recipient, and then a grandchild who is a U.S. citizen. And actions like these will splinter these families and tear them apart. And to what end? And, and to what uh, result ultimately in our communities where we have more broken homes, we have more chaotic families, and a cycle that could result of more poverty, more gang membership. Missing even, father, missing, missing support system. Right. And yeah. ultimately, our country, our communities are... are uh, damaged by by these actions and so there's no it doesn't appear that there's any sort of long view to these ice raids that are currently happening yeah and i you know the the good news about it is that there's this energy and there are these legal advocates who are committing their time uh to defending this person and he's the first and so the first person apparently who's been put into this situation is receiving zealous advocacy on his behalf and and i hope that the court system uh, can do some good uh, and uh, and push back. And, you know, it's time for some checks. So why don't we move on uh, to the deep dive. Uh, we're talking about an incident that happened in the city of Davis. I went to UC Davis for college. The town is near and dear uh, to my heart. I had my kind of formative years, you know, from 18 to 22 growing up in that town. It's like a small town, half the population are students really active community members. What happened was uh, there's a mosque uh, that's located in the city of Davis and it was vandalized it, very uh, severely. I think there, there are estimates that the damage was about $7,000 worth of damage. Windows uh, were shattered. Some bicycles were damaged and then bacon was wrapped around door handles. And Sajid, if you're, if you're not, if you're thinking, how do I do a maximum affront? Right, you, you you know you go to Safeway and you pick up bacon and, and do that. It, it it really seems like it's about the religion of the institution, not just the damaging of the windows. Right, the bacon sent sent the message the most because it's a very particularized issue within the Muslim community where we're prohibited from eating pork, and um, it was a pretty inflammatory, startling event for Muslims like myself and people in the Muslim community uh, that are concerned about the impact of Islamophobia and uh, the anti-Muslim rhetoric that has been going on in our country for, for months and years. And so this was really close to home because it happened here at Davis. You went to Davis. I have two sisters that went to Davis and countless friends that went to Davis. 
and it often is looked at as a really safe, quiet community. Kind of bubble-like. Yeah, a, a safe haven, um, college town. Um, accepting. Very accepting, never any, didn't, doesn't appear that there were any issues of culture clash or Islamophobia or anything like that. So this, this incident was uh, kind of rocked the community to a degree. Um, and the reason why it has come up, so this incident actually happened in January, so over a month ago. And then in the past week, Davis officials or Davis police, the Davis Police Department, after an investigation, um, arrested a woman named Lauren Kirk Coelho, C-O-E-H-L-O, for the vandalism and for uh, desecration of a of a mosque as well as a hate crime enhancement. And she was arrested via an arrest warrant and then taken into custody in Yolo County and under. Uh, with a $1 million bail that was set by a judge and then is now currently in custody on that bail uh, pending the um, process or the, the kind of the goings-on of her case. Yeah, so what we've uh, read about uh, this woman through reporting is that she's about 30 years old. She graduated from uh, Davis High School in 2004. She's a graduate of UC Berkeley. Uh, she has no uh, criminal history in terms of uh, misdemeanors or felony arrests. Uh, she has uh, apparently substantial ties to the city of Davis. You know, her home is in Davis, her high school is in Davis. Uh, her neighbors spoke kindly about her. They did that classic, like, oh, I'm shocked, shocked, you know, that this happened, the kind of neighbor interview after something terrible occurs. So the FBI and Davis police were working on the case. They executed a number of warrants and were able to get into her phone and social media. And it appears that she had expressed concerns about her own mental health to her mom, you know, describing herself as having mental problems. You know, who knows what the tone is on that or the context. But uh, it, the social media history revealed, you know, what I think could only be described as some sort of radicalization that she was getting into Twitter messaging and and Google searching of Dylan Roof, praising Dylan Roof, uh, the person who uh, committed uh, multiple murders uh, at a church during a prayer service. Uh, she had researched a bomb vest and was questioned about, you know, whether she had killed anything before and said, no, but I'm... But I have dreams and aspirations I would like to kill. That's what she is purported to have said yeah, so, in messages. So it's... Uh, this this case kind of you know the first you know one of the things that came up for both of us was just how inspired we were by the community response so many people in the city of davis got together to rally in support of the uh, community of the mosque itself uh, money was raised by the community in order to do repairs and put in security people rallied uh, to show up to services uh, people stood in solidarity and stakeholders at the mosque, like people who were on the steering committee, the treasurer, uh, came out and expressed, um, they came out and they didn't express hatred for this person. Uh, they expressed the desire to meet with her, to express to her who they are, uh, to try to seek some understanding of her. And uh, a grad student, for example, said, oh, I'd like to sit down and have coffee with her. You know, and it's just so contrary to, well, what we need to do is put her in the criminal justice system, lock her away, send her to prison, 
have a felony conviction on her. Like nobody who's spoken as a stakeholder from the mosque has expressed a desire for vengeance. What they've expressed is a desire in their view for justice and understanding and gratitude for the community support. Yeah, and, and uh, to on the flip side of that, if you, I came, I became aware of this issue via Facebook, and I had my, my former intern and current public defender named Nagad Zaki, um, giving him a shout out, uh, wrote a Facebook post um, because he shout out he, he was seeing in part of, um, in part, his, of the, part of the Ader Nation, yeah, part of the Ader Nation. He's definitely one of our fans. Um, he was seeing on his Facebook feed a number of Muslims in our community, the community that I grew up in, that were calling for a pound of flesh for, for, for this woman, Lauren, um, essentially calling for her to be locked up and for that she deserved to, to stay in custody and that she should get the maximum penalty and things like that. And Nagad wrote this beautiful blog post where he um, called on the Muslim community, much like the folks that you referenced from the Davis community itself, called on the Muslim community to take a breath, to take a pause, and to uh, really reflect on what benefit uh, she, Lauren, would receive, the Muslim community would receive, and our community in general would receive if Lauren was to be processed just like anybody else in the, in the criminal justice system, just like so many of our clients that get processed through, that get branded as a felon, that serve jail time, um, and ultimately no one really benefits or gain, or, or uh, moves forward. We as a community don't move forward. We just essentially punish. We feel good about ourselves for a few brief moments, and then, but nothing has really changed. Nothing has really been remedied. Um, and so Nagad and like the and these uh, Davis community leaders are saying and have said, let's take a moment and let's understand why Lauren, if she did commit this crime, why she did why she did so. Um, and perhaps through some sort of restorative justice, through her coming to meet with the community and the community meeting with her, her doing community service with Muslims or getting to know Muslims, um, her paying restitution to the community for the damage that she may have caused, uh, that we will gain some mutual understanding uh, and actually move forward as a community as opposed to uh, reverting back to the system of mass incarceration, which merely punishes people, brands them as felons, and then um, only kind of perhaps even deepens them in, into their positions um, uh, against each other. The vandalism is just breaking property that doesn't belong to you, and it's a felony if it's over $400 in California. So vandalism of $7,000 seems appropriately charged uh, as a felony, assuming that you know, all aspects of guilt can be established. If you commit a felony, and the reason that you uh, uh, commit the felony is because of some bias against the victim. And the bias could be for disability, gender, nationality, race, religion, uh, an association that the person has. The punishment for that felony can be enhanced. It can be increased. And the reason is a hate crime has a particular danger. You know, like breaking windows or slashing tires can happen in communities. But when the victim appears to have been singled out because of something about them, you know, something like their religion, something like the color of their skin, that creates a community harm that's distinct. You know, so, and no question, 
smashing up a, a mosque and wrapping bacon around the uh, front door creates a distinctive harm than just slashing some tires, you know, in a neighborhood. Uh, even slashing $7,000 worth of tires, right? Right, Or even putting bacon on my windshield, you know, as a person who as a person who eats bacon you know that you know that there's something distinctively harmful that right because the hate it, crime charge isolates it's for lack of a better term it's terrorism in a, in a lot of ways it terrorizes people it creates a very unique fear within a very unique um, population of people um, and so for a mosque to be targeted in this way or for a, a gay and lesbian uh, youth center to be targeted in a certain way, or you know, it, it will it creates a unique fear in a unique set of uh, people, um, and that's why uh, we're grateful that obviously these hate crime legislations exist and these statutes exist. Uh, but there is uh, the, on the flip side of it, they they do require a pretty relatively high threshold of evidence because it requires a specific intent um, showing that the peop- the person committed the crime for these. For these particular motivations, yeah, and you know, you'll see that uh, aspects of the crime that are particularized to people at the mosque, right? Like the bacon, that's especially relevant for determining whether this is a hate crime, whether it was motivated by those people's religion, right? Uh, where breaking windows might not, right? Yeah, uh, the, ba- the bacon is kind of the is the kind of linchpin towards any sort of prosecution in this case, as it relates to a hate crime. Well, and then you know, her online searching is going to come up her online world is the it appears to be the reason to go from forty thousand dollars of bail to a million as opposed to 40 to 80 or 40 to 100 yeah and it's it's really problematic for me um, on a number of levels to see that bail amount set so high first it brings back issues that we um, have discussed before not necessarily on this podcast but have talked about in terms of the interaction between our bail system and the presumption of innocence. Um, the fact that countless numbers of community members are held every day in our county jails across the state without having been convicted of anything, where they the law says that they're to be presumed innocent um, and that their arrest, that they're being charged, are not evidence of their guilt, but then they are being held in custody for countless number of days before any sort of adjudication, whether it be through a preliminary hearing, let alone a jury trial, has determined their culpability. And so this um, bail amount of, of being a million dollars, let alone $40,000, whatever the amount uh, would have been, it smacks in the face of the presumption of innocence for Lauren um, and for any, for any other community member that's arrested for a crime and then is held in custody um, or is required to pay money to get out. The second thing that is, a, is of concern here is that Lauren, as far as we know, has minimal criminal history. She's 30 years old. I think I saw that she had a trespassing um, infraction or some sort of trespassing issue in Santa Barbara County, but she has no prior criminal history. And so by setting this million-dollar bail and by the police introducing these issues regarding her social media, they essentially are... Um, punishing her for her potential to commit crimes. I was telling you yesterday, it seemed like the movie Minority Report, where they're essentially capturing people before they commit the crimes, or they're capturing people for thought crimes. And here, 
even if she committed this particular act of vandalism. And if we are justif or if we're holding her in custody and justifying her being held in custody based on some of the things that she's expressed or that she's thought about, then to when do we when does she ever get out? Is there a, does she get out after 30 days, 60 days, 100, you know, three, six years? Yeah, uh, any, any rationale for keeping her in on a million dollars bail is the rationale for never letting her out. Right. And, and so, and I, I don't see a component here where they're saying, let's hold her in custody on a million dollar bail um, until and unless she participates in certain programs or services that could help rehabilitate or remedy some of the issues that uh, may be resulting in her online behavior or some of these uh, these troubling uh, associations that she might have. Instead, all it does is hold her in custody where she may in fact be further rooting herself in some of those ideologies or where her mental health issues may be becoming more exacerbated to the point where when she ultimately is released that she is only um, a, a potentially more dangerous threat to the community. And, you know, the thing is, or the thing that should be stated is, the question isn't uh, million dollars bail or her out on the streets untethered. Right. right. There are other options. There is every tool that could be imagined, from a million dollars bail to a hundred thousand dollars bail and conditions with pretrial supervision. Right. And an order that she uh, have a monitor on her so that she not be able to leave uh, the county of Yolo, or that she not even be allowed to leave her home. Like there are so many tools to craft that to ensure that a person comes to court and to address public safety concerns. That the false question that's kind of proposed is, it's either forty thousand dollars bail or a million. This uh, million dollar bail it serves the purpose of holding her in custody. It doesn't ultimately serve the purpose of making sure that she comes back to court or that anything uh, that may be, may be beneath her behaviors or at the roots of her behaviors is being remedied in any, in any particular way. It essentially, it, I, from my percept position, it's, an, it's a no-win scenario, um, except for the idea that incarceration is our answer to these behaviors. Um, it, and that is an age-old problem that I think our country has, has suffered with is that we resort to incarceration as our, as our answer to behaviors like Lauren's or other any sort of criminal behavior as opposed to um, attempting to remedy what may lay beneath the behavior. Would you represent Lauren? Oh yeah, without question. I wrote a blog post about that and my being Muslim and her uh, being accused of vandalizing a sacred space uh, would not in any way diminish my loyalty to her or my willingness or ability to represent her because my job or our job as, as public defenders is to hold the prosecution to their burden of proof um, where she couldn't be convicted of, of these crimes absent proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I'd ensure that the police and the government appropriately collected the evidence against her. You know, when we're talking about the social media um, sleuthing that they did, the uh, effort to secure uh, whatever evidence that they may believe they have against her, that we'd ensure that the prosecution and government did so legally and in line with our United States Constitution. So how about you? Yeah, what, what are your thoughts? So I think that... Um I think the would you represent question has just a, I question the premise mm -hmm. of that question, which is 
that our representation is somehow an endorsement of conduct. Right. Right. So that, uh, you know, would you, I, so, no, 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 I wouldn't be able to represent Lauren, but I can handle uh, a drive-by shooting case, you know, no problem, Mm -hmm. you know, because I don't identify with the victim where I do identify with the victim of the, you know, religious minority subject to uh, vandalism. I don't see our representation. My view of what I do is not an endorsement of people's conduct in their on their worst day or their second worst day or whatever. It's about uh, representing people, giving them dignity, allowing them to make decisions in a very difficult time, uh, and being zealous. Like I believe in, you know, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the fourteenth, the eighth. You know, those constitutional values are vindicated only if people stand for them. Right. And, and I'm committed to standing for them. Uh, so, I, you know, that's, that's the way I look at it. Uh, I look at that no matter what. So it's, you know, would you represent this person? Would you represent that person? How could you represent this? How could you represent that? Uh, there is no moral wrestling match for me because I, I approach it from a different perspective, which is there are things uh, that I'm uh, deeply committed to fighting for. Right. And those things have nothing to do uh, with what happens out in the world uh, or the harm. You know, you want to be aware of the suffering that people experience. You want to be really empathetic to the experience of victims, to the traumas that our clients exp- experience, to uh, the way systems are in place and the way that systems fail. You, know, you want to be receptive to all of that and kind of understand how it's affecting you and reflect right. when it's hurting. Uh, but the approach isn't about, well, this person was justified in committing this crime, but this person wasn't. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't have a, I don't just, I'm not on the, uh, I only represent uh, people who haven't committed crimes or people who have done this or that. You know, I don't draw those lines. So same yeah, is true for Yeah, I've never had a moral quandary in any of the years of, of, our, of my practice as a public defender um, because we, I know what my role is on behalf of our clients, on behalf of our system. And in particular, too, as I've as I've grown as a public defender, um, and as a human being, I think I've, I'm trying not to necessarily justify why our clients have committed certain acts or crimes, but to help under to help myself, themselves, and our communities understand what what trauma or what uh, is at the roots of those behaviors, and so that we can best remedy them moving forward. And so for Lauren, that's exactly what I would want to do was I would want to get to know her. I'd want to understand her life, uh, what she's endured. I'd want to know what may be, I'd want to know or explore what may be uh, at the root of her alleged behavior and and then uh, attempt to present solutions to the, to the court, to the DA's office that don't involve incarceration that can help remedy those, uh, those traumas or whatever is, is causing her to act in the way she has, um, and ultimately, I think everybody wins in that scenario. The like we like we talked about earlier, the community wins, she wins, and we don't have to resort to incarceration as our as our be all end all for all criminal. Yeah, acts. I, I mean, her uh, serving uh, a jail sentence or even a prison sentence uh, will send a message. It will send a message uh, that you know hate crimes. Uh, you know, could result in incarceration or uh, imprisonment. Uh, if there's an outcome where she is able to change her life, 
where she could potentially become an advocate uh, for those folks who she harmed. Uh, if there is a true opportunity for restoration, that sends a, that sends a message too. Right. You know, so, so it's, you know, it's kind of a, it's not true that only one way forward will send the message that this shouldn't happen. There's a lot, there's many undetermined ways of, of how this could play out that are situational. And the best thing to do would be to get up close and to kind of view her uh, and try to understand, which is what the people in the community are trying to do now. Yeah, and, and the, the this idea of deterrence or, or, or jail time or prison time being a deterrent, I mean, I haven't taken the time to, to read the studies on whether that's actually true. I know we accept that to be a truth generally as a community, that that jail time or prison time is is a deterrence to future criminal behavior, either by the individual or by others in the community that might be thinking of committing those same types of crimes. But um, beyond that, I, I don't know. I don't accept that premise, number one. I, I, I don't accept the premise that um, that jail, beyond the mere uh, arrest, beyond the mere going through the criminal justice system and being, uh, being arrested and charged and coming to court, um, that jail serves some above and uh, above and beyond deterrent uh, purpose that those other things don't already serve. Well, and there's also the downsides of all of the harm that mass incarceration has done. You right. know, so the, it's right. it's too com- we're we're uh, we're in too deep <laughs> we're in too deep on this dive. So I think we should uh, extract ourselves really quickly. Yeah. Uh, there was some uh, question. They, a photo was posted of of Lauren, uh, and it was like a high school graduation photo or a maybe a it's like in one of those fake gowns I think it's a yearbook picture Um, and that was posted on various websites and so that photo is you know 12 years old Uh, now there are photos of her at the arraignment presumably once those photos became available newspapers used them but some folks uh, were uh, upset uh, you know in comment sections or had a reaction where why is this person who just bashed up this mosque and did all these bad things why is she being projected out in the media uh, with her high school yearbook, yearbook sure. photo? Where's her mugshot? Where's her mugshot? Yeah. Why aren't they using her mugshot? That's what I mean. I'm, I'm yeah. reading the Facebook comments with exclamation points and things like that. And, yeah. and my reaction is, why do we have to use mugshots for anybody? Like, why do we, in these moments when people are arrested for crimes, why do we need to uh, expose them in their worst moments, why why do we why do we have to um, for the for the average black young man who's accused of a crime or the Latino young man who's accused of a crime or Dylan Roof, why do we have this communal need to want to humiliate them in their at their worst? And that's where I think the use of mugshots really comes from is that we laugh at them, we point at those folks, and we say we kind of have this otherization of them. Um, I think there was there's like collections of celebrity mugshots online, you know, where people laugh and and take joy in the fact that these people, these celebrities are, you know, drunk or disheveled or looking a certain way. And so my question back to those folks that were so um, angry that Lauren's yearbook picture was being used instead of a mugshot is is to ask ask them to ask themselves, why do we have to use mugshots in the first place? Um, and so rather than for me and I for me rather than uh, utilizing kind of age-old destructive practices like using mugshots why don't we instead use this uh, moment where Lauren's yearbook picture was being used as an opportunity to say hey 
if Lauren's yearbook picture is being used, maybe when my black client gets arrested for a particular crime, the newspaper doesn't use his mugshot and instead uses a picture from his prom or from his high school football team or doesn't use a picture at all. Um, and, and I think we should use these moments as launching points to, to better practices rather than using these moments as, uh, as occasions where we fall back or devolve to certain undesirable behaviors. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, so why don't we uh, move forward. If you have any uh, comments, uh, we'd love to hear from you on this subject. Uh, you can email us at aiderandabetter at gmail.com. Uh, you can post a comment in one of the various websites uh, where our uh, podcast can be found. We'd really love to hear from folks uh, on this subject. And I think that you know there's going to be different views, uh, and we'd love to hear them. So why don't we move forward to our things. Sajid, uh, what do you got? What I have uh, this week is um, a website or a program called defyventures.org. Um, I actually worked when I was in college between my freshman and sophomore years for a small startup in Belmont, California called ThinkWest. I don't even think it exists. But the person I worked for, his name was Atif Rafiq. And I was just scrolling through LinkedIn the other day and I saw that he had become a board member for this defyventures.org, D-E-F-Y Ventures. And um, what it is is a program where uh, this organization takes convicted offenders, um, former drug dealers or people that have been incarcerated, and uh, matches them up with people in the business community to harness uh, their abilities, their talent, and their potential, and takes, uh, takes them and encourages them into entrepreneurship. And actually, they've, it seems as if they have tremendous success stories where these uh, former, uh, formerly convicted folks are now starting businesses and are entrepreneurs in our community. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to that program. Shout out! And also to, to uh, it, it gives me a moment to reflect on some of the documentaries that I've seen of prison life in California and then the numerous clients that we interact with that have such tremendous talent and potential, uh, whether it be in terms of their charisma, their writing, their artistic uh, um, abilities, their uh, their potential to contribute in the in in the business world or with arguments and and rhetoric things like that, and how often uh, these talents are are lost, um, either because of community uh, struggles or that they're lost because they're incarcerated. Like these people are locked away from the rest of us. And um, I, I think that a program like this is a really refreshing because um, it, it, it uh, captures the potential and the ability of, of people that otherwise um, our community is deprived of so often because they're locked up or they're, or they're dead or they're um, lost in, in, in poverty. And so uh, just a reminder for myself and others that there's uh, you know, it's a kind of my soapbox moment, but it's um, that there's a lot of potential out there. It just needs to be harnessed in the, in the right way if we give people the opportunity, the chance, and the margin for error. So I have uh, two things really quickly. Uh, the first thing is just following up on our Davis conversation. I, uh, there's a big rally in Davis, and uh, the mayor of Davis, whose name is Rob Davis, uh, spoke. And he spoke uh, about an overwhelming feeling of shame 
and he said that it, that word, shame, is a word that doesn't make you feel comfortable. And he went on, maybe what I'm talking about is a collective sense of shame. It wasn't abstract for me. It was, how can I face my brother Hamza? It was a sense of collective shame for this community. And he started asking these questions like, why a sense of collective shame? A response like that, it's the act of an individual. That's a culturally appropriate response. You know, this person, this is my side, this person just did it, it's their fault. He went on, we believe that. It's a very American response. I sometimes wonder if that response, appropriately culturally as it is, isn't at the root of the wilderness march at which we find ourselves today. Our inability to own our collective brokenness, he said. Uh, I fear that if we continue to indicate the scapegoats among us, sending them out into the wilderness for the expiation of our collective sins, that we will only continue to perpetuate the mimetic, mimetic violence that we would otherwise decry. We must own together shame. Uh, just like, it's a mayor. Poetic. A mayor said that, yeah. you know? So I, I was really uh, struck by that statement. I read it in the Davis Vanguard uh, reporting, and uh, it stuck with me. The other thing, just had to go on wax on this, Boogie. Oh, Boogie Cousins? I can't believe it. I It's... So I look at this is a Northern California podcast. Yeah, so so Sacramento Davis, Sacramento Kings, owned by Vivek Ranadive, managed by uh, the general manager Vlade Divac. They traded Boogie Cousins, the best center in the NBA, and uh, Omar Caspi, a terrific stretch four, you know, with with wonderful range, for a first round pick, a second round pick. Uh, Buddy Heald. Buddy Heald, who's a, a, a great prospect, potentially a, a six-man of the year, you know, in four years. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> Tyreek Evans. Tyreek Evans and, and Galloway, yeah. uh, who's both of those people probably won't be on the team. Right, they're kind uh, of throw-ins for salary purposes. They're throw-ins. So Buddy Heald and a first and a second for the best center yeah. in the NBA. And just this charismatic ride-or-die, you know, super technical fouled you know it, it i just it was something really thrilling about watching him play and it's heartbreaking or not heartbreaking it's just like oh no not again not again sacramento right and not again vivek you know i mean look i'm just gonna say it i root for vivek yeah i, I want vivek to succeed i want him to make it i want the owner of the jaguars to make it Okay. Brown, brown people brown, unite. Brown sports owners, right? right? If there aren't any brown, if there aren't any Indian NBA players, you wind up rooting for NBA, Indian NBA owners, <laughs> and, uh, and and just seeing that grade, I I saw the a draft grade or a trade grade, and it had the Pelicans, A plus 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 plus, and then Sacramento F, and who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows how it's going to play out? But Vivek claims Buddy Heald is the next Steph Curry. Right. But he said that about Stauskas, who's no longer on the team. Yeah, they, they, there are so many issues with this trade. There are so many layers to it. Yeah, Stauskas, I remember they drafted him because they were crowdsourcing the draft pick. They were, like, using crowdsourcing, and then it completely bombed because yeah. he's not even on their team anymore. Um, yeah, we root for Vivek. I actually saw an article about Vivek wanting to uh, take basketball to India. Um, he wants to play a game at like the Taj Mahal and at in Delhi because he wants to globalize the brand. We're rooting for him. Yeah, we're rooting for him. We got you, Vivek. Yeah, but you know, I, I, you're a friend of the pod. 
So when I, when I first saw the trade break, it made me think of Bill Simmons when he used to write about trade uh, proposals, and he'd call it the poo-poo platter. He'd say, <laughs> you know, trade uh, De DeMarcus Cousins for the poo-poo platter from the Pelicans, and that's kind of what this felt like. But then I started to th read some other takes on the whole thing, and, and DeMarcus has been there for five, six years. They haven't even sniffed the playoffs. They've built their team around him, and I'm not saying that they've built – their team around him successfully, but they've built their team around him, and he, he hasn't taken them to that next step or even remotely close to it. And although he was a beautiful person in the community, he seemed to be really thoughtful and engaging in the community on the court, he definitely had these peaks and valleys of emotion, the highest joy to the lowest suffering, you know, the, the technical fouls, which that's is why love, people love him. watching him play, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that there was this... You the, feel something. Yeah, you feel something, exactly. But... Uh, from a team perspective, it just seemed to be that there was this volatility about him that was hard to build build around or build upon, uh, and it just it it's sad. Um, but it's also interesting too, or it's also problematic too, because it seemed like they could have gotten so much more for him if they yep. had made this decision a year ago or even several months ago. Um, it's kind of like that Niners thing we talked about in our last podcast is like it's it starts to make you question management when they do things a year too late as opposed to a year yeah. early. And so if you were going to trade DeMarcus Cousins, then they should have done so much sooner and they would have been able to get a lot more back. Instead, yeah. they take 75 cents or 50 cents or 25 cents on the dollar and then yep. they're having to restart again. And who knows when the Kings are going to be any good. You're going from known best center in the league who's young yep. to a prospect yep. and some and some picks. Right. Uh, the, here's the good news about the trade. The good news is Anthony Davis has been kind of locked away with the Pelicans. You know, he's a force, and it'll just be thrilling to watch those two play. And what happens? I don't take it as good news because I'm kind of afraid of them now. Uh, no, look, if they make the if they get to the eighth seed and then the Warriors have to play them in the first round of the playoffs, the Warriors have struggled against Memphis, right? Mm -hmm. Who does Memphis have? They have Zach Randolph and Marcus. They've struggled against the Kings. They they struggle against the Kings. They've struggled against against some teams with these multiple bigs. Um, and here they might have to go up against Anthony Davis and DeMarcus. And I'm not saying they're going to lose, but it might take more out of them than if they were playing the Kings. Um, NBA in a, in a fan. I love the dubs. I love them. Steal against steal. They're going to go through the battle. It's yeah. going to be thrilling. Yeah. I, I hope I'm rooting. I want to see them. I want to see them in the playoffs. Who do you want to see? Pelicans? I want to see Steve Kerr figure out. What am I going to do? I want to see Ron Adams. Yeah. I want to see Draymond Green, guard boogie. Right. And then switch over to Anthony Davis, you know? And I want to see uh, – I want to see it. So, yeah. anyway, that's the, that's the good news. The bad news is for Sack. So, anyway, thank you so much for listening to Aider and a Better. Talk soon. Bye. Raindrop.